My guest today is the Manager of Business Development at DocuSign, and here's, what, here's a few of the things that his colleagues say about him. Graham is a fantastic manager. Two things really stand out about his leadership style. First, his driving performance by putting culture first. Secondly, it's his authenticity as a leader. Here's another one. Graham is one of the most committed and goal-driven sales professionals I've ever worked with. His passion for what he does is evident both to clients and colleagues. His standout qualities are his devotion to the progress of his colleagues, humor, honesty, and a positive mindset. Graham was and continues to be one of the shining examples of how one can succeed in a large organization through grit, determination, hard work, application, innovation, and a good nature. Graham Coyne, you're very welcome to the podcast. Paul, thanks a million. Great introduction. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Delighted to have you here, Graham. Uh, tell me a little bit, Graham, where you grew up, whereabouts, and a little bit about the background of that. Yeah, of course. So I think for me, you know, from Dublin 12, which uh, has a bit of a reputation now at the moment due to Conor McGregor. Um, so I would have grown up within that area and uh, played a lot of football, a lot of sports as a kid. Um, and I seen the film Wall Street, which you probably know with Michael Douglas when I was about 12. Uh, and from that moment on, I didn't know what it was that I wanted to do, but I wanted to look and sound and speak and act like Bud Fox. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't even know what sales was at that time. Um, through the footballing and, and you know the sports that I played, um, the first exposure that I had to sales was when I was 14 and we had to uh, play Black Rock. I went to Drimla Castle and it was a very, very good sports tradition. But we had to play Black Rock and we knew that Black Rock College had the investment, they had all the kit and caboodle, they had the fancy buses, they had the jerseys. And I thought, no chance am I going to play Black Rock as the captain of this team and we're like ragball rovers. So I took upon myself to go and, and find investment from the local businesses, pubs, news agents, restaurants. I literally went door to door. Uh, and within two days, I raised 847 euro. I'm going to be very specific because there was one guy that gave me 17 euro. And uh, from that, I, I felt that moment of accomplishment. I felt that, um, you know, that that. That, that success, that win, you know, that close mm. feeling at 14. Um, that was the first exposure that I had into, into what I now know is, is, is selling door to door. Worked a lot with my dad. He was a sole trader, independent uh, sign writer, the worst salesperson that you could ever imagine. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, he was, he was an artist at his trade and he was happy enough just to be that, you know, but he, mm. he, I, I always seen opportunities from working with him to take it to the next step, you know, have other people working for him, take on more business. But, you know, my dad was just happy enough to be good at what he what he does. And um, so that started to mold me into what I am today, you know, mm. that, that hunger, that drive, that tenacity, mm. um, a little bit of um, wanting to be the best, wanting to take things a little bit further. That's still prevalent today, just in a very, very different version of Graham. I'm wondering, are there any connections between what you might have seen with your father? I'm, I'm, I'm making the big assumptions here, tell me if I'm wrong, where people might have taken advantage of his good nature, the fact that he was dedicated to the art and not to the sales side of things. He probably left money on the table, got screwed over because of that. And the character in Wall Street. Great observation. And 100% all of the above. Um, I think I looked at that in the sense of, you know, like there's a lot of opportunity cost here, Dad, you know, and it made me think that whilst I was similar to him in a lot of ways, you know, hard work, uh, dedication, family orientated, but then there was something else within me that I didn't get from him, which segues into the qualities that I picked up from my mom. And I, I would consider myself um, somewhat of an alpha male. I know we have a bit of a bad rep. Um, there's a lot of us in sales as well. Um, but I actually got that streak from her, risk-taking, uh, you know, kind of being a little bit more assertive. Um, and then the connection between the, the, the opportunities lacked by my dad and perhaps that skill set, and then what I seen from a fictional character in Bud Fox definitely brought the two together. Mm. Um, I also picked up on a lot of what my dad did extremely well. 
like I said, work, hard work, dedication, um, you know, being being committed to something, yeah. trying to be the best at something that you do. But there was definitely a lot there, Paul, that was uh, was, yeah. and I knew that there was something that I had that was different. I just didn't know what it was. Yeah, and 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 in defence of alpha males, I think um, they get a bad rep rap until until somebody has to stand up, and. Uh, then, then I think everybody is, 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 is glad they know one, that's for sure. Um, you said something else, by the way, and for people who might not get the connection, I just wanted to connect the dots. You mentioned Dublin 12, which is a, a postcode in Dublin, and Conor McGregor, and it's the proper 12. That's where the name of his whiskey comes from, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and so that makes you then a proper 12 character. Yeah, I think proper in the sense of I'm authentic, uh, call mm. it as it is. I, I speak how I speak, I dress how I dress. And I think one of the things that has made me in the short time that I've been a leader, um, someone that people will follow is the fact that there is a, a high level of trust and honesty mm. about what I do. I am who I am. I've been where I've been. Um, I believe in what I believe in. Um, so, yeah, I think proper in that sense. There is other connotations associated with Proper 12 and Conor McGregor that I would have no affiliation with whatsoever. Can I tell you my Proper 12 story by whiskey now, by the way, this is, as mm. I always thought myself as a, as a whiskey connoisseur, and uh, my son was a big fan of the Proper Tweed, but he's, he was a big fan of Conor McGregor, and uh, had a bottle of this Proper 12 whiskey. And I had gotten a bottle of whiskey, can't remember the name of it, as a gift, from, as a thank you gift for passing some business to somebody. And so this fancy bottle of whiskey arrived in the house. I shouldn't have, but I looked it up online. It was 500 euros for this bottle of whiskey. And I remember thinking, I know which bottle I'm going to enjoy the most. So this was around Christmas time about three years ago, four years ago. And my wife said, well, why don't we do a little taste test, blind taste test. All of us, five of us did a taste test and all of us preferred the proper 12 whiskey <laughs> versus a 500, bad. you're mad, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and it's, it's, listen, it's not bad at all. And, and with regards to Conor McGregor, you know, you can't argue with, with his success and what he's done. Um, you know, so he... Uh, oh, yeah. By the way, got nothing to do with Conor McGregor. That whiskey comes from Middleton and Cork and it comes from, uh, certainly did back then anyway. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, it, it, and it's interesting the way associations happen. But anyway, um, yeah. talk to me a little bit about then. So you're 14 going door to door. You get this taste. Also, you're watching this film and you get a sense of you're identifying traits and characteristics that you feel uh, or you identify with. Talk to me about that then and then a professional sales role. Map out that journey for me. Yeah, so I think at that time, you know, I didn't know what it was that I wanted to be. I didn't know what it was that I had within me. You know, I did, my natural instinct was, um, you know, to start my own business. You know, I, I definitely had an entrepreneurial streak, but then there was something about starting my own business that I didn't feel like I had a good enough idea um, to, to take to market. Um, so I, 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 over the course of time, I, I started to look uh, and speak to various different people, family and friends, um, and I got into door-to-door -door sales. Um, and I had to pay my way through college. So at one stage, Paul, I, I was doing a master's degree and I had three jobs. I had an internship, I had a part-time job um, in, in Superquin at the time, um, and then I was doing door-to-door -door sales for, um, for Sky. And we would literally turn up in Sky, I remember the first day, we had to meet in O'Connell Connell Street, outside the Burger King on O'Connell Street, and we were given two things by our manager, our team lead for the day. One was a bus pass for the week, just be on a Monday, and two was the area that we would cover. So get the mm. picture, I'm, you know, first time ever wearing a, a shirt and tie outside of work, uh, trying to look the part, um, 17 years of age, uh, and I would be just plotted in Finglas, Black Rock, wherever week it was. And that was it. It was literally just as simple as we would have some, some leaflets and, and um, you know, some, some work that we would, uh, would bring with us some collateral and we would knock on doors. So again, mm. I, I further fueled the, 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 the thing that was in me, that's something that was inside me when I was 14. Um, 
I got to a point where I knew this wasn't sustainable long term, so I wanted to move on to something else. I moved into a more established company uh, called Ergo, where I had what I felt was a was a, a hunter type role. It turns out it was more of an account management client based role, um, and I was extremely young to be doing that. Um, I got bored with that very quickly. Ergo is a great company to work for, and, and I still have some some alumni that I, I keep in touch with in there. And John Purdy has been um, somewhat of a mentor to me as well. Uh, got bored of that type of role. So again, that was further affirming to me, I'm a hunter. So then I moved into a startup where I was a Dublin person selling advertising space to the farming community throughout Ireland. I worked for a couple of <laughs> And at that time, Dublin were doing really well in the Gaelic. So yeah. you get to feature on a Monday morning, you know, you're probably just taking a beating by the dubs at the weekend. And one of the first calls you get is from a guy with a Dublin accent, number one, mm. and number two, trying to sell you advertising space for a website. So we're competing directly with the, the, the well-known players in the industry. That was interesting. Did that. Um, and at, a, you know, at that point, I, I realized that I got to a point, Paul, where I hadn't actually crafted my trade. Mm. Like if you think of those, those three different scenarios, nobody had actually taught me anything. I hadn't mm. learned anything. So again, I knew that somewhere down the line, this was going to catch up with me. So I, I made a, a life-changing move and was blessed to have the opportunity to move into LinkedIn. And that's where everything changed. Because in LinkedIn, I started as, a, as an SD, a BDR, um, and moved from BDR level one, level two, level three, to uh, an AE role, SMB, mid-market and enterprise. And what I learned in there, and I learned a ton, but the most valuable thing that I learned was I had a moment of clarity and two things stand out. One, I realized that to be a, a top, top performance sales person, it's not about what's above the iceberg. And I know we hear this analogy all the time, but to personify that for you, I came in and I was working with an account executive who everybody was talking about. Everybody was talking about this guy. And, and, and he won't mind me mentioning him. His name is Gary Moran. He's still in LinkedIn and he's now a, a regional sales director. And everybody was talking about this guy. I was like, this guy is like, you know, this is my Gordon Gecko. <laughs> I and I was like, who is this guy? Like, he's smashing it. He's on his way to club. He's doing great. And when I met Gary, he was totally different to the person that I pictured in my mind. He came out, jeans, t-shirt, you know, beard, very casual. And I was like, is this the Gary Moran? Is this the guy? Is this the Gordon Gecko? Five minutes into our conversation, I understood why. Tell me, please. I, I, I straight away, he made me feel comfortable. He made me feel relaxed. He, he, we had an open and honest dialogue conversation. As the conversation went on, I seen how structured he was, how he taught about accounts, how strategic he was. Here is a guy that personifies the beneath the iceberg piece. Then I started to watch him, um, you know, on, on discovery calls. And the one thing that I noticed about him is the call would go on for 30 minutes and Gary would speak probably 5% of the time. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, like, I want to say this and I want to say that and I want to jump in. And he was like, no, cool. And when we got off the, the, the call with the customer, he had three pages of information about what the customer needed. Then we went on to the demonstration and he nailed it. Boom. Got it. So again, it's, 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 it was that moment of beneath the iceberg. The other part that I really got clarity around was, for me personally, I was good on the phone, Paul. Came from a you know, background of door-to-door -door selling, had that natural raw, you know, just wanted to get out there, wanted to be the best. Mm. And a piece of advice was given to me by a, a leader in LinkedIn who had observed me. And this person had said to me, Graham, you're like a boxer with one good knockout punch. And that's it. You haven't got anything else, man. Let me be honest with you. You need to work on those other skills. You need to work on being better uh, at Salesforce, you need to be more structured. You need to listen more. You need to look at your colleagues and see what they're doing. You need to add in more weapons to your arsenal, which you don't have. Because one day, what's going to happen is you're going to get knocked out and you won't know what to do. And he was dead right because I, I was on the phone a lot. The results were starting to kind of die off a little bit and, and I didn't know where to go. So I started looking at people that were very different to me. 
in the SDR org and I started to pick up on things that they were good at and I started to bring in those new weapons. Um, and both of those things and the overall experience part of LinkedIn was life changing. What was it like getting that feedback? It was so tough because the person that, that gave it to me, um, he wasn't, they weren't someone that I had a brilliant relationship with, you know, and, it, and now years later, you know, someone said this to me recently and I hadn't heard this one before. Not everybody that's nice to you is your friend and not everybody that is not nice to you is your enemy. Mm, mm. Um, and it was definitely the case with this particular individual. They had a particular style that, you know, I, I wasn't used to. Um, mm. But apart from that, Paul, you know, this, I was really good. I felt I was really good. Mm. You know, I felt I was the best. I felt I was, I was on the phone. I was, I was, I was Bud Fox, right? Uh, and I wasn't. I wasn't. And I was going down a path of just sticking to what's comfortable for me to do. Um, and the inevitability would have been that uh, my results would have suffered. Definitely. Does, do, yeah. does finding out that you, despite what you thought about yourself at the time, being Bud Fox, does finding out that you have a way to go in terms of growth, does that, does that in excite you or is is that something you just have to dig yourself out of such a great question i think at the time because of my lack of experience and i suppose maturity um i felt i had to dig myself out of it i, I felt like i still had a point to prove you know like i i, I almost changed and, and developed those different skill sets that i needed in spite of the person that was giving me the feedback and um, now today particularly with this role that i've been doing for the last 12 months you're learning so much, you're failing so much. Um, and I think being comfortable whilst fearful of failing um, is totally healthy. I think it's just mm. getting a sense of, okay, I'm not absolutely smashing this. I'm not an expert. Mm. What is it that I need to improve? How do I get there? Um, and then, you know, seeing the other side of that is uh, very rewarding. I want to talk to you about that first year as sales manager because as it was described to me recently by a guest on the podcast was, and I hope I get this right, is that the first few weeks you come in all enthusiastic, I've got this. And then you go through a phase where you, you kind of, you're doing the job of the reps as well and that you're kind of looking at maybe them struggling. You've been through that, so you have some good answers on this and you're kind of rolling up your sleeves and you know, let, let me sort this out, right? Because it's a, an expeditious way to get you to get to your goal. And then you realize that this, that's just not scalable. You, you just can't do it. And that's when you kind of hit a wall and you, you, you're realizing that being a leader is not the same as being an individual contributor. Curious to know what your experience was like. Yeah, I think... Um... I think a lot of people that will hopefully listen to this podcast will, will in, in, in the background relate to what I'm saying. When you, when you boil down, you know, being a salesperson, particularly in an organization like DocuSign, where I have been uh, quite a, a successful salesperson, um, when you boil it down to its most simplest form, what we do as salespeople is getting people to like you, to believe in you. Now, you have the challenger methodology, Sandler as well, of course, you know, that will, will challenge how you are with the customers. But at the end of the day, you know, you need people to at least believe and, 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 and come into your tent, essentially. Mm. You do that. And I've done that for, for 16 years. You know, I did it, got my AEs to like me when I was an SDR, got my customers to like me, you know, get people to, to work with me and, and bring them into the net. When you transition into a manager role, particularly when you're managing younger salespeople like MDRs and SDRs, no matter what way we look at it, the initial instinct for us, Paul, is to make people like us, is to try and get people to believe in us, try and get people to trust us. As a result, you're doing the job for them. You're fixing problems. You're putting out fires. You're doing a number of different things that if you're honest with yourself and put it in layman's terms, what you're actually saying to your team is, please believe in me. Because if you believe in me, then you will follow my leadership and then things will be a little bit easier. That was a big big transition for me because soon I realized that you get used to being inverted commas the the bad guy and um, so I can I can relate to the point that you made 100% uh, like I said putting out fires fixing things doing the role proving your worth proving yourself proving that piece around please 
believe in me, like me. Um, and it does take a while to shake that off, 100%. Mm. Mm. Who would you say, Pastor Present, has inspired you the most? I think, personally, outside of work, um, my mum, definitely, mm -hmm. um, so strong. Uh, such a strong, strong uh, individual, woman, uh, in the sense of, you know, instilling in a belief with me. And one thing that she said to me, and I remember the first time she said to me, I was six, and I remember it vividly because I was going out to play um, uh, a football match for, um, for uh, basically the first time. Um, and I was the captain, and this was the first time that I was, I was the captain. And she turned around to me before I left, and she said, Graham, she said, don't be just one of the lads. You know, try and be the lad that the other lads look up to. And don't be afraid to be like that. But don't be afraid to be a little bit different. Don't be afraid to be a leader. It doesn't work so well. So personally, my mum and we talk every day and we're, we're very, very close. And she's given me, ironically, she's given me that assertive alpha male hunter streak that's just to, to, to my core. Um, professionally, it's a tough one. Paul, because I've worked with so many really good leaders. I think one that does stand out is a, is a leader in LinkedIn. Uh, and again, he won't mind me naming him, um, Paul Terry. Um, because I remember Paul taught me firsthand uh, about being a compassionate leader. And I'd never seen compassion before. Um, I remember I was going through a very difficult time. I was a top performer in, in, in LinkedIn as an account executive. Um, and things just went wrong in my life, you know, outside of work. And, I didn't know how to handle it and I was suffering and work was almost my oasis, Paul, in the sense that I was doing well and there was a place where I was good, you know, what I what I did. But then, you know, personal life had, a, had an impact on my professional life. And I never forget, Paul came down to me and he was he was aware of what was going on. And he grabbed me and said, Graham, 15 minutes, grab me, we'll have a little chat. Went for a walk outside and he said, and I'll never forget it, he said, Graham, you've given enough to this business You've done us well. Now it's our turn to look after you. I don't care if you don't bring in any revenue for the rest of this financial year. You just make sure that you look after yourself. And I'll never forget that because it taught me firsthand in the midst of a hyper growth company where it is about numbers, where it's about revenue, where we're all so driven. Here was a leader, not a manager, a leader that took the time to really kind of get things right with me and, and, and show me compassion, not empathy or sympathy, but real, real compassion. Um, and he's someone that definitely inspires me. Yeah. What did you feel at the time when you were having that conversation? Uh, awkwardness at first. I didn't know what was this, what was going to be about, Paul. To be honest, it, it was. I was thinking that he was bringing me outside to say, "Listen, you, know, you need to, you need to get it together, man." You know. Mm. Um, when he said it to me, um, I, I did. I nearly started getting emotional, but I, I, I didn't want to, um, and I, I didn't want to show that vulnerability. I wasn't comfortable at that time with, with being vulnerable. Um, relief, just relief, just a weight off the shoulders. Um, now again, it didn't directly result in immediate, you know, revenue coming in and targets here, but it just gave me a little bit of breathing space to get it right for next quarter. Um, yeah, I think that's. I think there's a really, really important lesson in that, Graham, for people who might be in a similar situation to yourself or. As a leader, you've got people on your team and you're trying to figure out what do I say to them. And sometimes you don't need to know what to say, you just need to know what to show, which is what you're talking about, is that understanding and compassion to kind of say, look, we all go through times when we're going to take a hit on performance because there's stuff outside of our control. And being told just to put our socks up doesn't help. That doesn't solve the problem. Sometimes, and as you described it, I, I like the way you said, it's like a weight off your shoulders, which gives you the space and time. Um, it can feel like it's at a, you know, you're, you're, you're going down this motorway at 80 miles an hour and all the cars are bumper to bumper. And because of that, you're in this heightened state. And when somebody just gives you that space by giving you space between you and the car in front, it takes all that pressure off and allows you then to, yeah, that's the way I, I sense it anyways. Definitely. What you're saying. Yeah, I think like if, if I look at my career and how I how I was and how I wanted to be as a sales professional, right? So let's start very briefly back at 14, driven, tenacious, uh, you know, get after it. Uh, 16, mm. 17, door-to-door -door sales, get after it. 
um, and everybody that knew me up until this point knew that you know I was uh, I was a hunter. I was uh, I was for want of a better word an aggressive salesperson that just wanted to get it done. And it took a real unique leader in oh. in Paul to spot that there was a little bit of vulnerability there. I needed and nobody else knew apart from my direct manager who was amazing as well by the way at the time. But to spot that someone just needed that kind of arm around the shoulder moment despite what appearances would would make you believe phenomenal um you know that was a real eye-opener for me that day yeah how do you use that entire experience your experience door to door you know school of hard knocks literally and figuratively and then the transition through both you know ergo and linkedin and then DocuSign. How do you leverage all of that as a leader? So I think everything that I've been through, um, there's, a, there's so much value in all of it. You know, even right down to that moment when I was six and I'm, I'm leaving the house and, you know, that, that phrase that my, my mum gave to me at the time, it's all there, you know. Mm. It's very, very hard to encapsulate that. It's very, very hard to package that. And, and give that to people as and when they need it because there's a lot there as we all have and there's a lot more people out there that have tons more experience than me but what I did was when I moved into this role I made it very clear what I'm about in terms of my mantra or my ethos and I boiled it down to three things in order of preference number one is culture number two is is pipeline or results and number three is next play and I can draw upon experiences that I have to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm creating an environment that pushes those three pillars in a very, very high way. So if we talk about culture, we have things like acting like an owner, collaboration, humility, um, tenacity and hard work through your activity. Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of pillars there that you know, I would have brought in and, and have learned from LinkedIn and from DocuSign and other parts of my career. So that's the first piece. You get the culture right, Paul. We will create an environment where people are proud to be salespeople, enjoy what they do, um, and, and have a bit of crack doing it. Mm. If that's done, activity will be high. That'll drive results, which again, I'm all about results. At the end of the day, I like to be the best. I like my team to, to go and to achieve what it is that they want to absolutely smash it. And once they do that, then they can move on to their next play. And next play has been a big theme throughout my career, as you can you can see from some of the experiences I have, particularly in, in LinkedIn. So I think what I've done is rather than bombarding people and, and constantly saying, you know, back in my day, because I think that's that's not a great way to do it. I think I've set three very important values and um, culture, pipeline and next play. And that encapsulates everything. I want to talk to you a little bit about the culture, if you don't mind, because you mentioned in there about think like an owner. And I, talk to me about what that means to you. It's actually quite a simple one. I think, you know, and we need to keep it simple. I think simplicity and clarity is one of the things that, that I, I try and do well. Um, and I did it quite well as a salesperson from the customers and stuff like that and, and with my team. Acting like an owner is, let's find a way. We will find a way. There's a problem. Okay, let's surface the problem. But what's the potential solutions? What should we do? Like there's a reason, Paul, why so many people don't become sales professionals. I didn't tell my parents I was I was in sales. I think till I was at 25. Um, particularly my mum. I think my dad wouldn't have minded too much, but my mum was like a salesperson, really. So I think actually you had such great potential. <laughs> what happened that day when you left for your, yeah. your game of football? Yeah. You, you, you used to go and visit her with little pens inside your pocket to tell her, <laughs> you know, I'm an engineer, really. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah exactly um but i think you know there's a reason why you can't do a degree in selling essentially you know you can't go to trinity or ucd or or, or, or tud to, to study sales right because i think we're still getting there with the reputation of sales pro professionals we're still trying to elevate it and um, when it comes back to the act like an owner piece that's the most difficult piece because you will be presented with problems that don't have a scientific solution to them x plus y doesn't always equal z in sales. So I think acting like an owner is, okay, there's a problem, there's an issue, hey, we're behind things here. Um, you know, we need to get it done, we need to fix it, we need to find a way. The converse of that is when you're doing well, 
you need to show that you are like a business owner. So you need to be humble. You need to be strategic in your thinking. And I, I heard recently through the Oscars when Will Smith said, uh, be careful when you're at your highest or your most successful or your peak, because that's when the devil comes and looks for you. And that can happen so much in sales. I've seen it before. I've been there before where you are at the peak. You've hit club. You've done that big deal. Then you start to get ahead of yourself. Then you start to lose your momentum and you will suffer down the line. So for me, act like an owner. Yeah. Let's find a way. Yeah, speaking of Will Smith, he didn't hit club, he hit Chris, but that's another story. <laughs> Just to put a time marker in the PDF or in the in the podcast for people who are listening to it some stage in the future. It's very topical at the moment. Tell me if you were uh, if you were Minister of Education and you could put any make any subject mandatory on the leaving cert, what would it be and why? Uh, that's such a good question. I haven't been asked before. I think, I think we we sometimes, I think we overlook the the importance of mental health, physical health, nutrition. Mm. I think you know. I mean, I grew, grew up in a school where you know PE was something you did for a bit of crack. Um, I think what would have helped me greatly um, is to understand a little bit more about mental health. Um, a bit more about you know physical education and having having a, an idea as to what makes the body tick, um, and also uh, as well nutrition. You know I think that can help help us in all aspects of life. I know we get mm. elements of that Paul with, with biology and stuff, but I think mm. it, with, with mental health being so important, and for me, for someone that you know has had struggles in the past and still do mm. with mental health, um, you know it would be something that I would one hundred percent put top of my list for mandatory subject on the leaving Interesting. And I remembered what I was going to... It was more of a comment, because you mentioned about sales not being on any college, not in any serious way. They'll have courses called sales and marketing, but really it's not something that's going to help somebody standing in front of a door ready to knock at that door. It doesn't help them at all. And I, and I just, as you were talking, I was thinking about it. And I think the difference is if you go to college to study art, you're applying what you learn to a canvas. When you go to study engineering, you, if it's structural engineering, you're, what you learned, you're applying it to a building. Uh, if you're a computer software engineer, you're applying it in code, in hardware, you're applying it externally. Sales is the only profession where everything you learn, you have to apply it to yourself. You're the canvas. You're trying to get outside your comfort zone. You're trying to take feedback. And the feedback is not about you know, your, your ability to I don't know, manual handling, to keep it simple. It's about you and who you are. And that, that can make it hard. And somebody recently said to me that the one thing they could never do was call a stranger. They just couldn't do it. And, and, and that's difficult for most people. And, but to push through that, it's, it's, it, you're the canvas. You have to overcome stuff. It's not you're applying it to something else. And I think that's why is that it's not something that can be studied. You can learn, right? You can learn through other people's experiences, I think, and you can learn about psychology and, you know, qualification frameworks, all that kind of stuff. But when push comes to shove and you've got to ask tough questions or you've got to build rapport with somebody who ordinarily maybe you wouldn't want to spend that much time with, but they're your prospect. I think that's what makes it difficult. And I just don't know if you had any thoughts on that. I do, yeah. Like, I, I, I fundamentally, I agree. Um, you know, I think there is. A, I, I do believe that top top salespeople are born as salespeople. I'm talking about the elite. I think there's a lot that we can learn, that we can study, that we can develop, and um, that we can enhance. And we have to. Prime example is me. I think I, I, I was a born salesperson, um, but I would have inevitably suffered and not achieved what I achieved. Um, and I'm still on the, on the road very much if I hadn't developed the skills and, and, and different uh, talents that I needed to do the job. I think when we look at how, and particularly BDRs and SDRs, account executives, you know, there is a scientific part of the job and there is an artistic side of the job. The scientific part of the job for me is 70%. You know, elements into the equation, uh, activity, um, your emails, the quality of your emails, the quality of your output, um, you know, what you do to structure your day, having a plan, uh, you know, how you manage your time. These are all scientific things that we can do that you can learn. 
The other side of it, which for me is 30%, is the artistic side, which you do predominantly when you're an account executive, um, building rapport, asking questions, learning to shut up as well and just listen. Um, and also vision selling and, and, and going that little step further. So there is elements of both um, that can be applied, but it, it's, it's a unique profession in the way that you have scientific elements of it, you have artistic elements of it. Not a lot of people want to do it. It's not for everybody. It takes a ton of grit and determination, um, but yet we do it. What aspect of leadership uh, have you had to adjust to the most, you had to learn the most? I think if I was to give you the boring answer, the boring answer would be the forecasting, um, you know, and, and the numbers behind that and forecasting for a team. Um, that would be the out of the box type of answer that I would give. I think for me, the biggest adjustment has been realizing that people have different values. People have different things that motivate them. People have different things that get them up out of bed in the morning, keep them up at night. Those things may be different to me. I believe mm. in, in, in a certain uh, set of, of values. Um, a lot of it is around hard work, putting in a graph, being the best in what you do. Um, a, a lot of people aren't like that. Understanding and accepting that that's okay, that people mm. have values and different motivations, different ways of working, mm. different styles. Um, that was for me a, a learning curve initially. Um, something that I'm definitely getting better with, but constantly mm. improving on. And it's difficult, Paul, I found it difficult initially to manage someone that was just completely different to me in every way, shape and form. Different values, different personality, different way of working, and would come to me with ideas around, you know, here's how I think we should do this. And I'm listening and I'm thinking, no, don't do it that way, you know? And unfortunately at that time, due to the lack of experience, um, I said, no, don't do it that way. Whereas what I'd say today is, all right, help me understand that a little bit more. Mm. Why, why are you doing that? And, and almost going back into the salesperson mode of, of, of discovery a little bit, mm. and then let them do it. And if they mm. fail, they fail, you know, and, and they'll mm. learn from that. And then that forms part of their development. Is there anything you're left that you'd like to prove to yourself about yourself? Yeah, I think, um, I, think I know where I'm going. Uh, I, I think I know... I'll get there. Um, I think I've had... I know, because I can hear the construction in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're yeah, working well, on it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a short-term project. That will be done by the end of the week. And if it's not, there's going to yeah. be some very, very uh, uh, displeased construction workers in my house. For me, uh, you know, I think I've had a lot of doubters, ironically. I think when you have a certain type of personality and a certain way about you, um, we do kind of have a, a strong element of begrudgery in Ireland, you know? And I think when I look, I, I remember someone saying to me, you'll never be an enterprise AE. You don't have the personality for you. You're not cut out for it. You're a volume mm. guy. And somewhere in that was a compliment. Um, mm. And I did become a, an enterprise AE and, and, and a decent enough one. Um, I think what I would like to prove is that I can get to where I want to go and just to be clear I'd like to head up an enterprise sales organization mm -hmm. I'd like to be head of, head of enterprise sales in an organization but I would like to be there and arrive at that destination Paul having not lost who I really am and who I really am is some of the stuff that we talked about but someone that can also be compassionate have a bit of fun smile on the face um, and not lose anything within the, the, the core values that I've built up and been taught by um, my parents and also within my professional life. That would be the, the end goal for me. And how much of a motivator is it for you when somebody doubts you? Uh, it, it's the biggest motivator. And I know it's a cliche and I know we hear it all the time. I don't have a rags to riches story. You know, at the same time, I didn't come from a very affluent background. Um, I've had to, to work hard at what I got and the more people that doubt me, please, I embrace it now so much because it fuels me. Um, so yeah, it does. It doesn't put me down at all, hundred percent. If you were not, if you were done with corporate life, you have enough. You're financially independent, and you could retire. So you could basically choose what you want to do. Uh, not that you can't, but you're, you're free of any financial obligations. What would you do with your time? So I think you know if if. 
if, if I had a realistic goal in, in that sense, I'd actually like to lecture sales in a university proper as a subject and, and help to, to give back and to mm. elevate the profession that we call sales, 100%. Mm. Um, if I was to be a little bit more aspirational and I didn't want to give back, I'd probably just go and travel the world and just live carefree. You could do a bit of both. Potentially. It yeah, would be... I, I, we all know colleges only work six, six months of the year anyway. <laughs> you could be so, you could be onto something true. there. Yeah. I, I yeah. think, um, on a serious note, I think if I did get to that stage, um, I, I think one of the, the, the biggest things that I've learned, I've closed the big deals, I've done the big commission checks. Thankfully, I've been blessed to do that. Um, I always question the impact that I'm making. And that's why this role that I've been doing for the last 12 months has been the most impactful role that I've ever done in my entire career. So I think if I did get to that stage, I was lucky to get to a stage where I was, I was financially secure. Um, I would like to give back and I would like to help the never-ending battle to elevate the profession of sales. When you say make an impact, other than say, you know, elevate how do you know when you've made an impact when you can see it what what is that what do you see that you go that's it well you know it, it's 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 little things you know it's it's a combination of, of of kind of two or three things one is just seeing someone that i manage or lead progress onto their next play that's an easy one right you, you hire them you see them come in you know go through the the, the, the ramping period smash their number get to the next play Obvious one. Secondly, it can be just something as, as simple as, as, as seeing someone just become more comfortable in themselves in terms of what they do and more confident. You know, it's, it's, it's literally just seeing someone that was once your brand new employee, someone that you interviewed. I, I take risks on people all the time if I see things within them that we can work with and we can work on. Um, so when you see people progress from the interview stage into a place where they're a lot more confident and confident, about what they do, brilliant. I think the big impact for me is that, particularly in this role, Paul, this is the most impactful role that you will ever do in your sales career, in my opinion, which is to be a BDO or an SD, or as we call them, a DocuSign and MDO. And I know that the impact that I'm making to shape some values within my team, to help them, and, and instill that self-belief that was instilled you know, in me from a very young age, if I can do that, I know that they will remember me in 10, 15, 20 years time, as I do with my first managers when I was a BDO, that's impact. And that's impact that I get and the satisfaction of knowing that I'm making that impact that I get more so than any of the big deals that I've closed, more so of, of, of sipping champagne cocktails in Hawaii, in club, LinkedIn, in DocuSign, closing that big deal, getting that big commission check, the Rolexes, the X5s, you name it. At the end of every quarter and at the end of every day, when I was a salesperson, I always felt a little bit empty because I wasn't making that impact. And now I am. When are you going to break it to your mother that you drink champagne cocktails? <laughs> Never. And I, she, she's still coming around to the fact that I'm a salesperson, Paul. It's been nine years, okay? So, yeah. And the, the, it's an interesting thing because I think it's a generational thing. I know I would have had it with my parents. Um, they just didn't understand sales at all. And it was interesting because <clears throat> I remember asking you about your father and his experience of sales. I remember my mother telling me my father was, he was a carpenter and he went out on his own at one stage. It didn't last long because the first job he did when uh, the guy says, how much do I owe you? He, whatever price he gave him, the guy was saying, geez, you're very expensive. And, and that, 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 that destroyed him, that negative comment. Yeah. And he just didn't want to talk about money, didn't, you know, it was money was a dirty topic and obviously didn't have that framework or maybe a mentor to help him through that. Yeah. Um, I think those kind of experiences shape how you think about the world, but the, the, the to, and I'm sorry, what I was going to say is that back, certainly back when I grew up, and I was thinking of this as you were talking about your next play, and that language is, is, is so 2020, like, you know, I know it's 22, by the way, but I'm just saying it's, it's a very modern language that when I grew up, 
the goal was to get a job in a bank or in the public service. It was a job for life. So next play just didn't come into it. And uh, the, the thing is, the most secure job on the planet is sales, if you're good at it. Because you can turn your hand to anything. And there's always, always, always a job for somebody who can, who can sell and bring together the, the scientific and the artistry of, of basically helping other people feel comfortable in your presence and helping them make decisions and navigate, making the complex simple, all of that, that stuff we talk about. It's probably the most secure job in the world. If, you're, if you dedicate, if you see it as a profession, which is what the theme you know, you've been talking about today, if you see it that way, you could be out of a job on a Friday and be in another job on a Monday. And there's very, very few professions that have that in them. So uh, it's a kind of ironic. Sometimes as some people see it as a risky thing. It's not really, not really, not if, not if, you, if you take it seriously. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, like, I, you know, when I, when I think about, you know, trying to explain to my parents what it was that I did, like my dad, for example, to bring it back, um, you know, doesn't have a wallet. Um, I, I think he has a bank account that you know is, is basically joined with my mum's. Um, he doesn't; he's not money orientated at all. He's not commercially orientated at all. And I remember like spotting opportunities where you know if he had one or two uh, lads working with him, and he could expand and take on more work and do more jobs and, and stuff like that. And I remember I said that to him for the first time, and he said he told me a story, which I'll tell you very briefly. He said. Uh, so I said to him, I said, look, like, why wouldn't you take on more staff? And he was like, well, what would I do then? I said, well, you take on more staff, you can take on more jobs. Uh, and he said, what would I do then? And I said, well, you know, if you take on more jobs, you're going to get, you know, more business and, and, and we'll be financially secure. He said, Graham, let me tell you a story, right? And he wasn't a, an anecdotal storytelling type of guy, so I didn't know what to expect. But he said there was two, uh, two guys fishing one day at the side of a lake. And one of them uh, was, uh, was from America and he had all the best equipment, the best fishing tools. He had all the tackle, he had all the technology, he had everything, right? And he's sitting down next to this other guy who has a fishing rod, uh, sandwiches and uh, a flask of soup and a little bit of bait. That's it. Um, but this guy that had nothing was catching so many fishes. And the other guy with all of the technology wasn't catching anything. And he turned around and he said, how are you doing this? Like, well, what is your secret sauce? He said, I'm just fishing. And he said, geez, you should take those fish and, and sell them, you know, because you're getting so many. And he was like, well, what would I do then? So, well, I mean, if you sold them, you could have a, a, a business and you can have your own brand, your own logo. Oh, yeah. What would I do then? You can make lots of money. You'd be financially secure. He says, oh, yeah. Okay. So what would I do then? I said, well, you know, you could retire and you could take it easy and you could relax. But that's what I'm doing now. And, and I know it's, a, it's an old anecdote and, and it just perfectly describes mm. my dad and what he's about. And like I said, I, I, I learned so much from him that was good and that was positive. But at the same time, I think it's a healthy thing to spot opportunities where, you know, we could do things a little bit different. Um, and that's where being a salesperson comes in. What's your own personal definition of success? It really does come back to that impact piece, you know, have you, you know, you can be, and I've seen senior leaders, VPs, all VPs, global VPs, CEOs, um, and, you know, one in particular that steps steps out is, is Jeff Weiner during my time in, in, in LinkedIn, um, impact, you know, what impact are you making? Are you, are you changing um, a, a particular way of, of life for people? Um, are you doing that in a positive way? Um, you know, are you are you changing? Are you developing? Are you are you creating? You know, are you challenging the status quo? So I think impact is is key, and the amount of impact that you can measurably see from the work that you've done, that's what success is for me. You gotta ask me that question, Paul. Ten years ago, five years ago, very different answer. And what changed that? I think that that conversation I had that day with Paul Terry. That compassion the first time that I seen compassion firsthand and over time um, you know learning from from success and failure as an account mm. executive um, you always have that that question mark over the impact that you're making so that's 100% what changed but specifically that conversation when I needed it so much 
um, was where things changed for me. I have a couple of quick questions I want to ask you. I'm just conscious of time, Graham, and yep. one of them is um, if, and this is a question I ask everybody, if your house were burning down and he, your family are safe, your phone, of course, and your laptop are, are, are safe, and you had time to run back into the house and grab one item to save it, what would it be and why? Um, so hopefully the, with the work going on, the house doesn't burn down. It's a, it's a, it's a likelihood. Um, I have a um, I have a, a set of rosary beads um, that my grandmother gave me, who I was very close to. Uh, she gave uh, these rosary beads to me when she was in the hospice, and um, she actually passed away uh, the next day. Uh, and I have it. I'm actually looking at it right now. I have it up on one of my shelves, um, and that's what I take 100% because everything else is replaceable. Love it. Love it, absolutely love it. Yeah, uh, it's 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 surprising actually. Well, because I do ask that question to almost everybody, and most people will say nothing. You know, everything's replaceable. But and and, and they genuinely maybe don't have that. What you, you're talking about? Uh, I have actually something here. Uh, there's a camera there. You can see it behind me. It's the old yeah. one. Mm -hmm. That was uh, my grandfather brought that. He. He was a stretcher bearer in the First World War and he stayed on in France after the war to uh, basically there was no work. And so he, he stayed on as a gardener in the War Graves Commission, basically tending to graves and things in France and sent money home. Um, to me, that's, that's, that's a heroic act. Somebody who looks after their family and provides by just, you know, displacing themselves essentially. But the interesting thing was, was that camera was his connection to his family back home. He would take pictures of the people he knew, the people he worked with. And I have all of these old pictures of him in groups with people. And, you know, they, they, were, they, they were his, his life. They were, there was his way of connecting what he was doing there back to his family back home. And that, that's the camera he bought in France. Um, it's, it's, I remember looking it up on eBay once, it's worth $35. But it, it'd be the one thing I would grab because it's just not replaceable. And it's not the item, it's the story and the connection and the relationship that, that it represents, I think. And, and that's what I'm hearing when you're talking about the rosary beads. Yeah, it's for both of us, it's the impact that that, per, that piece of, 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 of whatever it is mm. made on us. And that is how important impact is. When your time on this planet is done, Graeme, and there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of that book to be? Graham Coyne, The Impact You Made. That's, yeah, I love it. Well, all it remains for me to say, Graeme Coyne, is thank you so much for being my guest today. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat and thank you for being my guest. Absolutely no problem, Paul. Uh, I know I stand with good company. I've had some really good people on the podcast. So uh, thanks a million for having me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And you certainly added to that pool. There's no question about it. Thank you.